Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2017 Autumn Retreat. Our theme this year is Restoring Economic Prosperity. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Russ Roberts, the John and Jean Denault Research Fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is Restoring Faith in Prosperity, and it was recorded on October 23rd, 2017. So I'm going to talk today about restoring faith and prosperity. And I want to start by telling a story of something I used to do a while back, about 10 years ago. I used to teach journalists about economic data and statistics and how to evaluate evidence and statistics. And to begin the seminar, I would, I would ask them a bunch of questions about economic data. I had a, a secret motive. They didn't know what that motive was. I'll, I'll reveal that at the end, but at first it just looked like a quiz. So three of the questions that I remember vividly were the following. What purport, and as I ask these questions, I want you to think about what you think the answers are. First question was, what proportion of the American workforce earns the minimum wage or less? Okay. Second question, what's the standard of living of a person living in 2000 in America versus someone in 1900. How did that change over the 20th century? The third question was a little bit of a wild card. I would ask them, how many stars do scientists think there are in the universe? Okay, now you might say, well, that third question is probably the hardest one for most of us if we haven't thought about it or looked it up. You know, the answer is, actually the answer to two of those questions is a lot, right? <laughs> What's happened to the standard of living of an American over the 20th century? It's, it's gone up a lot. How many stars are there in the universe? A lot. And the answer actually to the first question about the minimum wage is not very many, okay? But, if I, but I asked them to put numbers down. So I did this for a number of years, and the answers to the first two questions, the economics questions, were very reliable. The journalists, and these were journalists from New York Times, National Public Radio, Washington Post, these are very high quality folks who are typically working in business and economics, not always, but in public policy generally. When I asked them what percentage of the workforce earns the minimum wage or less, the median answer, that is half the journalists said less than this, half said more, the median answer was 20%. That is, Half of the journalists thought that more than 20% of the American workforce earned the minimum wage or less. It's actually, at the time, was about 3%. Okay, so 20% is a very bad answer. But their answer for the standard of living change over the 20th century was much worse. Uh, every time we did this, almost like clockwork, 10% of the respondents actually believed that the standard of living in the United States for the average American in the, in the year 2000 was lower than it was in 1900. Okay, that was a 10% response. The median answer was an increase. They did think it had gotten better, but the median answer was 50% increase. That's a terrible answer. It's a really bad answer. The right answer is something between 10 and 30 times higher in 2000 relative to 1900. I actually started to believe that the reason they would say 50% is that they didn't think a percentage change could be over 100. <laughs> so they picked a number, eh, zero, zero is too low, 100, that seems like all, all out. 
So we'll say 50%. At any rate, uh, the answer is probably, again, 10 to 30 times higher. And my answer of 10 to 30 is extremely imprecise, right? And the reason it's imprecise is it's really not a question you can actually answer with any degree of precision. And why is that? And we're going to be talking about this today. Why is it hard to measure the change in the standard of living? Well, you'd think it'd be easy. Just take the average income in 2000, the average income in 1900, and you might not use the average because really rich people who can be very, very rich can pull up the average, right? We know that, say, uh, the, the starting salary for uh, graduates of Stanford the year that Andrew Luck, the quarterback, graduated, if we look at, at that average, that average might be distorted by Andrew Luck's very high number. He's a professional football player for the Indianapolis Colts when he's healthy. And as a result, you'd probably use something more like the median that takes out the, the distorting effects of the highest people, right? So, but when, when, you, when you do that, you'd say, well, I'll just look at the median income in 2000 and the median income in 1900, and I'll see how much it went up. And then you realize, well, wait a minute, there's prices too, because prices didn't say the same. So you wouldn't just want to look at how much income went up. What you really want to try to measure is how much you can buy with that income, what economists call purchasing power. That's what we mean by standard of living, right? And of course, you'd also want to worry about the fact that material well-being is not the only thing that matters in this world, right? But if we're only focusing on material well-being, it's extremely difficult to measure the change in well-being, in material well-being, that is the stuff you can buy. How much does your income buy in 2000 versus 1900? Or today, say, versus 1975? Or today versus 1900? And one of the reasons, just the most obvious reason, is that the quality of the things that we can buy has changed so much. And to use an example I may have used with you before, in 1900, if, or 1800, through most of human history, if I wanted a portable music option, unlike today, today my portable music option is in my pocket, this device is just an add-on, which is shocking. It'd be extraordinary if this device only played music because this device can access 30 million songs on Spotify. 30 million songs. In 1900, if I wanted to have portable music, what would I do? I'd hire five musicians to follow me around. And I, how many songs could I listen to? Well, it would be the number of songs in their repertoire. You know, I guess they could have portable music stands and be playing while they walked and read the music, but in general, if I said to you, well, how much does it cost to hire five musicians in 1900, and how much does Spotify cost me today, and I'll see how much it went up, and I'll use that to correct my income. I mean, that's just, that's a meaningless comparison, absolutely meaningless comparison. Or a car today versus a Model T, which came out in 1908. Model T, if you look at a picture of it, it's a box on top of an engine, right? It's nothing like really a car today, except they both have engines, right? but there's no real comparison in speed, safety, you name it. So comfort. So that comparison of standard of living in the past to the present is always going to be complicated by the fact that it's hard to measure what's happened to prices and what has happened uh, to the quality of those items. And before I get to the relevance for prosperity today, I just want to mention about the stars in the universe. Because it's one of the most extraordinary things you can, you can think about. 
and, and unfortunately, you, you'll probably go home and you say, how were the talks at Hoover? I learned this incredible thing about the stars, you know? This could be, this could be the highlight. So when I used to give this, <laughs> this is crazy, when I used to give this quiz to the journalists, the, the best guess as to the number of galaxies in the universe was 100 billion. And the best guess of the number of stars in each galaxy was about 100 billion. So the total number of stars is one followed by 22 zeros. Today, I'm told, I'm told, I looked it up on Google, that they think there might be as many as a trillion, a trillion? A trillion galaxies. So that gets us to a one with 24 zeros after it. And then you say, well, I don't, can't wrap my, round, my head around that number. So the best way to think about that is it's approximately equal to the number of grains of sand in all the world's beaches. That's what we live in, right? That's, that's mind-blowing. It's just extraordinary. And one last thing. How many people have been to Yosemite National Park? Raise your hand. You ever go out on a, on a dark night with no moon and see the incredible amount of stars you can see? Do you realize that other than the galaxy Andromeda, which is a smudge, every single star that you're seeing on the most perfect night of viewing is in our galaxy, the Milky Way? which means you're seeing approximately one trillionth of the stars in the universe. Something to think about. Okay. Now, in, in public speaking 101, you're not supposed to do that because you're going you're gonna to forget about everything else I say. So just clear your head. I just, wanted, I just love that, and I, I got to share it. But the reason I gave that quiz is that I wanted the journalists, my secret motive, was I wanted the journalists to understand that they're not, and they didn't get a good answer for the stars thing. <laughs> They, they weren't in the ballpark for that either, but I wanted them to imagine the possibility that their knowledge of the physical cosmos might be at about the same level as their knowledge of the economic cosmos, that is, way off, right? And no one likes to be told that they're way off, so they always, we, not just journalists, I and others, we, we tend to find ways to explain away, we, oh, well, you meant stars in the known universe, or I meant, when I answered it, I meant stars in the, I thought you meant the Milky Way. That's why I only said 100 billion. Or, oh, the minimum wage, sure, it's 3%, but how many people only earn, earn like a nickel more? I had in mind sort of in the area of, right? And when you said the standard of living, you know, I, I'm also thinking about other things that weren't related. So we always rationalize to ourselves. And the problem is, is that right now, we have a view about the American economy. When I say we, I mean there's a consensus emerging that has a certain set of stylized facts. And those stylized facts are the rich are getting richer, the average person's making no progress, therefore inequality is growing, and growth, if we look at the past 50 years, 50 years of economic growth in the United States, none of it, some are saying, none of it went to the bottom 50%. It all went to the top 50%. Or if you look at certain decades, the 80s, oh, it all went to the top 1% or the top 10%. Which is to say that there is a growing consensus that the economic pie, when it gets bigger, the shares of it, the pieces of it, the slices that are, quote, being handed out, which is not a very good metaphor at all. Uh, PGR Work says the economy is not a pizza. But it's a metaphor that we use a lot uh, as if someone bakes it up and then shares it out, and then it, the implication is, is the rich are keeping more of, their, of that pie for them, of the pizza for themselves, and everyone else is just left with a few scraps. 
the same amount that they had before. And the truth is, there, is da there are data that suggest that this is true. There is evidence that the middle class isn't doing very well, that a lot of the gains, or maybe most of the gains, maybe almost all the gains are going to the top part of the income distribution. And so that is becoming that view that the economy is distorted toward the richest people, whether it's the top half or the top 10% or the top 1%, that's becoming an ex a, 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 quote, fact. And of course, again, there is evidence to suggest that it could be true. But there's evidence on the other side. And what's interesting is that no one takes account of that evidence, other than rarely takes account of that evidence. And so what I'm going to try to do today is give you a glimpse of why I think that evidence is not reliable and look at the political implications for the fact that a lot of people, highly educated, influential people, journalists, economists, believe, and everyday people who read the newspaper, believe that the economy doesn't serve the average person, it serves the elites. So this is a deeply troubling, deeply troubling view. So there's, we could spend you know, the rest of the day talking about whether that's an accurate view or not. We could look at the evidence for that view, the evidence on the other side. I just want to give you one thing uh, to think about beyond the example I gave you before, which is that when you want to assess what's happened to standard of living over time, you have to measure prices correctly, and that's nearly impossible to do when quality changes, and therefore your assessment of standard of living is going to be difficult to, to measure. That's one reason. But the second reason, which is much more important, because it's very straightforward to think about, is the fact that when people say things like, when journalists and economists say things like, I say journalists and economists, it's economists and journalists. Economists write a paper, the journalists read it, they see a press release from the university that, where the professor works, and then they publish it on the front page of the New York Times. It seems like sometimes the New York Times just runs that article every day and they've been running it for the last 30 or 40 years. So after a while, people started to think, well, this is just open and shut, just a fact. Um, I have to mention that one of the more famous examples of this is from Thomas Piketty. How many people here have heard of Thomas Piketty? So Thomas Piketty made some, had a very influential book that came out a couple years ago, and it just came out <laughs> slightly awkward that uh, this is hard to believe. I'm just going to repeat this. If you want to look at it more with me, and, and, and send me an email. I'm saying what, what to look at. But it's just hard to believe. But it turns out that his data set for the 19th century in the United States, that is between 1810 and 1910, was based on one observation. In 1870, he just extrapolated the rest. He just filled it in with some assumptions. That's not data analysis. That's poetry. It's nice, but it's not, not economics or data analysis. But in general, what you will hear from the economists and the journalists is say, the top 1% has captured X percent of the income gains, let's say 85, 92, 92% of the income gains from 1975 to the present. They've, the top 1% has gotten those gains. To my ear, what that sounds like is, there were a group of people in 1975 who were in the top 1%, and they went and collected a lot of stuff between then and now, and now they have more stuff. And the rest of us didn't get any more. That's the standard way, that's the implication of that statement. The top 1% has gotten these gains. It's a really simple point. 
people in the top 1% in 1975 aren't the same people in 2017. People die, people are born. Sergey Brin and Larry Page were born in 1972, and they started Google. They weren't in the top 1% in 1973 because they weren't alive. So I'm totally not surprised that the people in the top 1% today who are Sergey Brin and Larry Page make more than the people who are in the top 1% in 1973, but it's not like the top 1% went and had a meeting and said, how do we keep everybody else from getting stuff? Let's keep it all for ourselves. Because at the root of that is the idea that the economy is a pizza. that You can just sort of move the slices around as opposed to a more organic thing that we all create through our actions and our vision and our dreams and our creativity, because that's what Google did. So it's not the same people. And here's the irony. When you follow the same people, if you look at people in 1973 and you see how did they do going forward, because the implication is when you say that the middle class is stagnant, that implication is always coming out of a data analysis where I take a bunch of people in 1973 and I look at their median income, say, and then I take the people in 2017 and I take their median income and I see that it hasn't changed, let's say. I say, oh my gosh, the economy's grown so much and yet the median average typical person didn't get any of the gains. The problem is, is that they're not the same people and in particular their characteristics are not the same. To take an obvious example, if there are a lot of immigrants who are really poor who come to America with low skills, which I think is good for America and good for them, then what's going to happen is the average, the median as well, is going to be lower today than it was in 1973. But it doesn't mean that the people who were alive in 1973 got lower income. It's like saying, I have a dinner party, and I invite the Golden State Warriors over for dinner. So before dinner, the average or median height in my house is really low. And after dinner, it's really high. So I guess dinner made me taller. No, I didn't. Those are two different things. You change the rules of the game. You change, it just doesn't make sense. So it's really important when you to remember that when you actually look at the people who were alive in 1973 and saw what happened to them, what you will find in, in most of the studies, not every single one, but in the studies that I know about, which, are, which is, this is a shocking statement when you tell people, they go, well, that just doesn't make sense. What you'll find is that the poorest people have the largest gains over time in percentage terms. They get the largest percentage gains, not the richest people. The top 20%, for example, in some of these studies, they get no gain. Well, how can that be? How can that, how can that be consistent with the story that we all know is true? And the answer is, well, because what we know is true is based on one particular way of thinking about how do I measure the impact of the American economy on people's lives. Well, I look at a picture today, or then, in 1973, and I come forward to 2017, but if the people are different, if their habits are different, if their skill set is different, if their family structure is different, and I'm doing this by family, I might get a distorted measure of what's actually been the impact of the economy. And if I don't correct for that, I'm gonna have a distorted vision of how future growth can help or hurt people in different levels of income. So, Regardless of whether you accept my skepticism about the standard story, the fact is, is that because it has become widely believed, widely, not wildly, you could say it's wildly believed as well, but because it's, it is widely believed 
that growth only helps the rich, we've suddenly come to a world where policies that promote growth are like a, for a special interest group, right? Think about how crazy and weird that is. And, and it's really weird because we live in a time when China and India have brought hundreds of millions of people out of poverty through policies of economic growth that have succeeded. They didn't just, the rich got incredibly rich in China, by the way, incredibly rich, much richer than they were before. That is, the richest people in China today are much richer than the richest people before. But the average person in China is flourishing and doing much, much better. And yet here in the United States, we have lost faith in prosperity, we've lost faith in the belief that economic growth lifts all boats, that a rising economic tide lifts all boats. And that, to me, is a little bit scary. Because what it says is, is that what we need to do now, instead of trying to make the pie bigger, what do we need to do? We've got to shuffle the slices of the pie. Now, I'm not sure. This isn't being recorded, right? OK, good. And you guys, don't tell anybody. But I'm not as confident as some people are, perhaps, in this building or perhaps in my profession, I'm not as confident that lower tax rates are going to spur great economic growth for a whole bunch of reasons, not worth going into right now. But I'm a little bit uneasy about that, that standard view. But let's say I'm wrong. Let's say economic growth really is created by lower taxes. Well, if lower taxes just lead to growth that just helps rich people, what do we want lower taxes for, say, the American people? right? So the political base. The political support for policies like low tax rates to spur economic growth just isn't going to be there. And we're kind of seeing that right now. We're seeing the difficulty the Republicans have in getting any traction on this. And in fact, it's encouraging people to think, oh, the Republicans, they're the party of the rich, right? Because they want lower tax rates, and rich people pay a good chunk of the taxes. In fact, they pay a huge chunk of the taxes. Well, that's because people leave out the payroll tax. I just want to, this is important, just another aside. When people say, well, well, you know, the rich, they pay all the taxes, and the average American doesn't even pay anything at all, that's because they leave out payroll taxes. Payroll taxes are a third of the government's revenue source, a third. Income tax is about half. They're both really important. So we always talk about cutting income tax rates. Sure, it's going to be taxes of the richest people who are going to be reduced, the tax rates of the richest people. I would love for somebody to propose a cut in the payroll tax rate, a permanent cut in the payroll tax rate. In fact, I'd like to get rid of the payroll tax and roll it into the income tax, because then we wouldn't be fooled into thinking that the payroll tax is for me, that it's set aside for my Social Security. It's a total lie, right? It's a fiction. And it's distorted our discussion of tax policy for, for the last few decades, a terrible thing. We pretend that it's earmarked for Social Security. It actually goes out the door, pay for everything else the government does. And it's not earmarked for you. That's just an accounting fiction to make you feel good about your payroll tax. But that's a, that's a bad thing. I'll just leave that alone. But my point is, is that in our current environment, there's, no, there's not much political demand for policies that lead to growth if people believe that growth is what helps the rich and not anybody else. Now, this is a little overly pessimistic. I do think that a lot of people in America think that they can get richer, despite the data, right? Which, again, I think is distorted. A lot of people think they can, and they do, get richer. People come here from all over the world to get richer. They don't come here, they don't leave and go to those egalitarian countries like Cuba, those egalitarian uh, 
paradises so that they can go live uh, and be like everybody else. I always like to point out uh, the guards face south. People are generally not trying to break into Cuba, right, to get, in, to get access to their wonderful economy. They're trying to break into the United States or break out of Cuba to come here. So if we are going to uh, have policies of growth, we're going to need to restore faith and prosperity. I think I want to suggest three ways we can do that, and then I'll open it up for questions. The first way we want to do that, I think, is to fight this view that all the evidence proves it's overwhelming, it's ironclad, it's open and shut, that all the gains from growth go to the richest people, not to the average American. And so through the um, Educating Americans and Public Policy program, I'm creating, uh, with Shauna and Chris, I, I see Chris here, Shauna here. Sean is here somewhere. Hey, uh, there you are, Sean. Hey, we're creating a series of videos on a different, a skeptical view that says that story is a little more complicated. It's a four-part video series. Uh, the first two episodes we hope will come out uh, next month sometime, so keep an eye out for that. Uh, but we're hoping to be a voice in the conversation that's been a little bit uh, surprisingly one-sided uh, to my ear. Uh, second, we need to promote po policies that encourage prosperity across the spectrum of skill and education. So there are lots of things wrong with the American economy. I don't want to suggest that oh, everything's great. Yeah, we need more growth because then everybody will benefit. That's not true. There are a lot of people who do get left behind these days. There are a lot of people who are not skilled or are not prepared to participate in the economy. And there are a lot of artificial barriers to having people be part of the economy. I'll just pick three, maybe four, we'll see. First. There's a lot of licensing requirements that people have put up as barriers to, to join certain skills, certain occupations. They're done to protect the well-being of the people already in those jobs. I think that's a disaster. Uh, I would do that across the skill spectrum. I think, uh, I think that's a, a huge draw, uh, drawback to the American economy today, an increasing use of licensing at, at the state and local level to make it harder for people to break into professions that they want to break into. Second thing I want to mention is it's really hard in America now to live in the places where your skills are in greatest demand. So that, those are America's cities. America's cities are thriving. Rural areas are struggling. You can, I'm going to wave my hands a little bit here. Hey, Trump, opioid crisis, despair, okay. But what is true is that people in rural areas are not doing particularly well. And if you think, well, I'll move into the city because there there's a lot of opportunity there, which is what, again, is happening in China and India. Enormous emigration from the rural areas into the city. Why is that happening in the United States? Well, there could be a lot of reasons. I don't want to suggest it's simple. You know, one reason could be people don't want to live in cities, right? They like their life in a more rural, slower-paced place, and they're sustained through different ways without having to work. But that is happening. Uh, but the second reason is it's really expensive to live in those cities. The, wage, the rents are really high, and they're artificially high. There's a lot of barriers to new construction. San Francisco is one of the most dramatic examples of that. It's extremely expensive to live in the city of San Francisco. That's uh, un the underlying cause of that is it's a pleasant place to live. But we've made it more expensive than it otherwise would be through policies that make it hard uh, to build and hard to expand housing options and hard to expand building generally. The third is obvious. The third thing we can do to increase people's access to the American economy is, is the American school system. Of course, there are many people here at Hoover working hard to try to make that better, but it's an enormous problem 
when you have a non-trivial uh, portion of your population in dysfunctional schools that are not uh, doing a very good job of preparing people for the 21st century. Uh, there's a tendency, temptation to, to look for, I think, panaceas. Well, just turn everybody into a coder. Everybody can be a, a STEM person, a computer science. It's like saying everybody should be a basketball player because they have high salaries in the NBA. It's not going to work for me. I've got to, you got to find what works for the people involved. But if you don't give them the most fundamental skills of reading and writing and numeracy and literacy, they're not going to be prepared. So those are the, the two things I want to mention. So for restoring prosperity, one, let's make sure that we can try to change the narrative. Let's do what we can to change the narrative to make people realize that growth does benefit uh, not just the poorest, uh, not just the richest Americans. And two, to the extent there are barriers to people enjoying the benefits of prosperity, let's open up those parts of the economy. Let's get rid of licensing. Let's get rid of the minimum wage, or at least please don't increase it. Let's improve our school system, and let's try to make our cities uh, more affordable through an expansion of, of housing. The last thing I want to mention, and I'll stop, is that prosperity is more than just material well-being. I alluded to that before. So prosperity is about I think of it as human flourishing, the opportunity to feel alive, the opportunity to find meaning in your life. That's through your work, it's through your leisure, all kinds of ways. For many, many people around the world, this is the greatest time in human history, right? For an enormous portion of the American people, it's the greatest time in human history. Access we have to information, the access we have to entertainment is just extraordinary. And people are, it's just such a vibrant world for that reason. At the same time, there are people who aren't part of that, who aren't participating in it, who will not be able to contribute. And I just want to close by thinking about the fact that we, we don't want a world where we have a high minimum wage and we say, well, it's going to make some people unaffordable. That's OK. We'll put them on welfare. Or oh, automation's coming. That's going to put a lot of people out of work. That's OK. We'll be so rich, we'll just pay them. I don't think people are going to be so happy. And happiness, broadly defined, what I would call flourishing is ultimately what really counts, not uh, how many uh, dollars in your bank account. So I'll close by saying we, what we really need is the opportunity to prosper, the freedom to prosper. At the center of our economic system is the idea that you prosper by finding ways to make other people better off. That's the only way to thrive over any period of time. And right now, I think there are too many barriers to making sure that we can make each other better off through our economic activity. As the uh, F.A. Hayek character says in uh, the rap videos that um, Tom mentioned, he says, give us the chance so we can discover the most valuable ways to serve one another. That should be our underlying ethos of our economy. It's the road to true prosperity. And if we can regain our faith in growth and freedom, most of the positive implications of that will happen naturally if the barriers I mentioned earlier can be taken down. Thank you very much. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.